Uh, well, good morning. Sorry to interrupt, but uh, <laughs> my mistake. Uh, man, good morning. How are you guys doing? Yeah, good. Awesome. Uh, my name is Marco. I am the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse Community Church. Uh, I'm so thankful that you guys could uh, join us this morning. We're going to uh, head into a new sermon series later on, uh, or this morning we're, we're starting a new sermon series, but before I, I jump into that and kind of walk through a couple of welcoming uh, uh, things, uh, we wanted to take this time to uh, do something that we do on a monthly basis. It's called, uh, it's called Mission Moment. This is uh, a time where we inform you of uh, uh, missionaries that we support financially, partnerships that we have locally, uh, but partnerships that we're also, or networks that we're also a part of globally. Uh, one of those networks is called Acts 29. We are an Acts 29 church, uh, and uh, what that means is that we are a network of diverse and global church planting churches. Uh, if you want to know more about Acts 29 specifically, I would encourage you to go to acts29.com. Uh, but if you want just a brief understanding of Acts 29, our, our goal is to plant churches that plant churches. And when we begin to talk about that, church planting is a giant umbrella or has become a giant umbrella because for us down here in the valley, that incorporates uh, quite a few things. For us, that involves actually planting new churches. Uh, it involves us helping in church replants and revitalizations. Uh, things like coaching other planters or pastors, whether they're here in the valley uh, or in other parts of Texas. Uh, but it also means supporting church planters or, or partnering with other churches, uh, not just here in the United States, but also internationally. Uh, our, our part of the network, the network is broken down into, I think, 13 or 14 regions. We are a part of the South Central region, uh, which consists of uh, Central Nebraska, Kansas, Western Missouri, Oklahoma, and Texas. So, so we have a giant network, uh, uh, or yeah, a giant network within the, the, the realm of Acts 29. In addition to that, every, every region or every network partners with another network. And for us, we are partnering with what is considered right now Acts 29 Latin America. Uh, for example, we just had a mission team that went down to Guatemala a couple of weeks ago. We're looking at partnering with some churches there. Uh, but more specifically, we're going to be partnering in the very, very close future with a couple of churches uh, in Mexico. Mexico right now is blowing up in the sense that many, many gospel-centered churches are being planted, and that is awesome. And what that also means is that they need support. And so you, us, as a congregation, we actually help fund several church plants, or we help fund planters who need to get assessed and trained to be in Acts 29. Uh, and so anyway, that's the whole premise of Acts 29. Uh, we're big fans of Acts 29. We love our friends in Acts 29. Um, if you want to learn more about Acts 29 in terms of, of specifically, a little bit more specific into what we do, man, hunt me down after service. I'd love to share that. If you've ever thought about uh, what church planting is or maybe see that in the future, man, come see me after service. Would love to talk to you. In the back on our Connect desk, we have some Acts 29 pamphlets so you can learn a little bit more, not just about this network organization, but also our region. And so that is Acts 29 
in a nutshell. I'll go ahead and transition into our, our time today. Uh, and, as I, and as I do that, number one, if you are new, again, welcome. So glad that you're here. On the chairs, there should be these connect cards. Fill one out. Leave it in the offering basket. We'd love to hang out. We'd love to hook you up with information or take that card to the back connect desk and Christina will take care of you. Also, if you are new or you are in need of a Bible, because as we uh, go through sermon series, we preach straight from the Bible. There are Bibles both in the Connect Desk and in several of the rows that you're in. That is our gift to you. So please take one, uh, man, should you feel led to, which we would love for you to do. Now, with all that being said, this is where we're going to be today. As you go there, I'll rant a little bit more. Uh, So we're going to be in Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So I'll let you uh, go that route. I'll talk to you a little bit about Titus, uh, and then we'll jump into our time. Uh, So we just finished a sermon series on the Beatitudes. We spent the past eight weeks of the summer walking through Matthew chapter 5, I think it was verses 1 through 12. The Beatitudes served as a portion of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And man, that study, if I'm just totally honest, it was absolutely wonderful, incredibly challenging and convicting. Um, And it is certainly not because I preached it, but because I believe that God the Holy Spirit was at work, not just in my personal life, but especially in a lot of the conversations that I got to have with you guys in light of what you're learning, in light of what God is doing, what he is revealing to you. So I think I think our study in the Beatitudes was incredibly beneficial. So I hope you enjoyed it. If you missed out on any of those sermons, you can go to our website and they'll, they'll be on there. With that being said, we're starting a new sermon series today on Titus. We've titled it Confidence, Conviction, and Conduct. We're going to be in Titus for the next nine weeks. From what I understand, that's slightly unheard of. A lot of people who have preached through Titus have done a fantastic job. They usually spend about four to five weeks, but we love being long-winded here. So we're going to go for nine weeks in Titus. Um, because we're just going to jump into uh, the, the start of this letter, I'm only going to give you a brief background into the context of this letter. And as we move forward over the course of these next nine weeks, I'll give you more and more. It's just that because it's four chapters, it is very, very dense in what it has for us. So I could kind of do a sermon on the history, and I don't want to. Uh, So with that being said, uh, so Titus is written uh, by the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul is one of the authors of the New Testament, wrote a large chunk of the New Testament. And Titus is usually uh, coupled with another guy named uh, Timothy. And these were two young pastors that uh, the Apostle Paul discipled. And what I love about them too, and though we're not necessarily talking about Timothy, but what I loved about them too is that we get to see this kind of relationship that Paul has with them, but also we get to see a little bit of their, their character, of their personality as we walk through some of these letters. I would encourage you to read First and Second Timothy later on. With that being said, 
Uh, Titus is one of the guys that Paul discipled. And so as Paul disciples this guy named Titus and this other guy named Timothy, as I mentioned, uh, their personality kind of gets to shine in, in these letters that Paul writes to them. For instance, as we walk through Titus, one of the things that you're going to notice, particularly in verses 1 through 4, is that it's a lengthy greeting. It is a lengthy greeting and a very dense greeting theologically and practically. Uh, in a lot of the other letters that Paul writes, he doesn't necessarily start off that way. It's a little bit shorter. And then once he starts going into the letter, he usually begins the first half of his letters with some heavy doctrinal breakdown of what he's trying to uh, teach or communicate to that church. The second half of his letters tend to be the practice of that doctrine, right? Uh, whereas as we start Titus, he goes straight into this lengthy introduction and then just goes right into what he needs Titus to know and what he needs Titus to do. So what we can take from that is that this letter is written with urgency. This letter is written with urgency and this letter is written to a young pastor who loves organization and uh, man just wants to execute. He, he is that guy. Give me my marching orders and I will go and make it happen. That is, tends to be the personality of Titus. Uh, someone who kind of uh, finishes and fixes things. Someone who kind of breaks the door down. Whereas if you read First and Second Timothy, you can tell that Paul is a little bit more encouraging and endearing with Timothy. Uh, we can suspect that Timothy may deal with anxiety issues. At one point, Paul tells him, I know your stomach is upset. You should probably have some wine, chill out a little bit. That's going to help out with your stomach ailments. Uh, and so, so Timothy is one who needs a little bit more encouragement uh, in light of his duties, whereas uh, Titus is one of those guys that's like hungry and man, let's go. What is it you need me to do? As Paul writes to Titus, Titus finds himself on the island of Crete. Crete is this island that is kind of in the fringes of the Roman Empire. Uh, think of it this way. Uh, when, when they talk about Crete, not because it's unimportant, but it would be something like us talking about Benitas. It would be us talking about McCook, right? These are small towns and cities that are kind of on the fringes of places like Far and Edinburgh. They're way out there, but just because they're way out there doesn't mean that they don't need order or the gospel. And so that's where kind of Titus is at. He is in a place where this town is uh, uh, on, the, on the fringes of the Roman Empire. And so because they're on the fringes, some of the people who believe they are Christians uh, have some wacky theology and the church is uh, in disorder. And so Paul is sending Titus to Crete to establish order, to kind of get things back aligned to the centrality of the gospel, to fix their eyes on Jesus. Jesus and ultimately establish biblical church leadership and a foundation of the gospel. And so that's kind of this broad overview of why Paul is writing to Titus. And because of that brief overview, we can see why there's a little bit of urgency that comes in this letter. You may not necessarily hear that in these first four verses, though I think you will. But certainly as we walk through this letter, you're going to hear Paul really undergo a lot of things. Now, why we chose to walk through Titus is because as we walk into the fall semester, 
We thought it would be a wonderful opportunity to walk through what does a gospel centralized church look like, but at the same time, how does that impact our conduct as Christians? Uh, When we're talking about confidence, really, that's just another word for talking about our identity. When we're talking about our conviction, we're talking about what convicts us as seen in the Word of God and how that relates to what we do, our conduct. So uh, that is a brief overview of Titus. Here's what I'll do. I'll read the first four verses. I'll pray, and then we'll jump into our time, just like Paul jumps into this letter. Here we go. Titus 1, 1 through 4. Paul writes, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in the faith, or excuse me, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Savior. That's a lot. We should probably pray. Here we go. God, as we begin our time in your word, uh, number one, we simply want to praise and thank you for allowing us to gather uh, and, and sing praises to your name. Uh, And Lord, my prayer is that you would be glorified through our singing and song and just our hearts being receptive uh, to your spirit through song. And now, God, as we transition into a time of worshiping through the preached word, not only do I ask that you would set me aside and that it would be your Holy Spirit at work, uh, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be just as equally receptive to the message of your word for the purpose of fixing our eyes on Jesus, repenting of our sin, and ultimately becoming more and more like Jesus for the purpose and glory of your name. God, we thank you for this time and this study. Uh, Pray that, uh, again, you would be glorified. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right. Guys ready? Okay. Here we go. We're going to break down verses 1 through 4, and I'll go much slower, but uh, we're going to break down verses 1 through 4 into three sections. We're going to attempt to break down these sections into one that is uh, in terms of confidence, in terms of our conviction, and then our conduct. So right now we're just going to deal with confidence, and that is all of verse 1. So if you have your Bibles open, that's really where we're going to be parked for these first couple of minutes. As we dive into verse 1, here's what I want you to know. Here is the crux of our time. Here is the main idea of our our sermon today, and that is the promise of grace inspires godliness. The promise of grace inspires godliness, and the joy of salvation compels us to mission. Okay? The grace of God, excuse me, the promise of grace inspires godliness, and the joy of salvation compels us to mission. Let's look at verse 1. Paul says a lot in verse 1. We're going to take four things that he says, and we're going to walk through each one of them. The first thing that he says is that he is a servant. 
Now, we need to talk about that because when we're looking at this section in terms of confidence, it directly correlates or connects to our identity. In other words, who Jesus says we are, that if we belong to God, we must have a foundation of who he says we are. And so we begin with being a servant, okay? The Greek word for servant is slave, Right, we've talked a little bit about this when we started Philippians. And sometimes some people kind of get stiff-necked and like, what do you mean I'm a slave? Well, let's unpack that a little bit uh, before we move on to the next thing. So he says that we are servants, okay? Uh, and, and as I mentioned earlier, that the, the, the translation of that is that we are slaves. Here's what Paul means by that when he calls himself a servant. He says, or what he means is that his entire life is marked by the work of Jesus. His entire life is marked by the work of Jesus. And because of that, we need to dig into what the work of Jesus is. And we focus specifically on redemption. And these aren't in order, I'm sorry guys. But we focus specifically on redemption. See, when we talk about redemption, we need to talk about what redemption means. And what redemption means is that we were bought with a price, that we were purchased out of something. That is the literal definition of redemption, that we were bought out of something. And when we apply that to the truth of the gospel and the work of Jesus, what that means and implies is that we were bought out of our slavery to sin and to never return. Redemption means that we were purchased out of slavery only to never return. And so what was the currency? It was the blood of Christ. That was the currency in which purchased us out of slavery, that gave us that redemption. Further, as we look at redemption, we then begin to distinguish the difference between being a slave to sin and a slave to righteousness. That is, if you belong to Jesus, you have been rescued from your sin, so you are no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. And so let's look at Romans 6. Ch- yeah, that was chapter 5, right? Romans 6, verse 15 through 18. This is what the apostle uh, Paul says. Where are we? What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. What Paul is saying is that the work of Christ has rescued us from our slavery to sin, and it is precisely because of that that our life is now marked 
by the work of Jesus, so we are now slaves, servants to righteousness. In addition to that, we will talk about being servants, and many will push back and say, then how come we still sin? If Christ has rescued us from our sin, why do we continue to sin? Here's what I would say. In light of the work of Christ, the presence of sin still is here, or is still here, but not its power. That if you belong to Jesus, you have the power through the Holy Spirit to say no to sin. That is the beauty of the gospel. That you are no longer a slave. That his presence may linger, but not its power. And so you can say no to sin because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, that is why Paul marks himself as a servant. That is why we should mark ourselves as servants because of the work of Christ, because our life is marked by the work of Christ. Number two, Paul says that he is an apostle. The word apostle has a general definition and it has a technical definition. We'll briefly look at both, though we won't spend a lot of time on it. But in short, what Paul is saying when he refers to himself as an apostle, he is referring to two things. Number one, he is referring to authority. And number two, he is referring to being sent. Right? He is referring to his authority and he is referring to being sent. So how does that apply to you and I? Let's start with being sent. One of the translations of apostle is sent ones. Here's what we would say about, uh, about being sent or, or being missional or being a missionary, right? Where you are is where you have been sent. Where you are is where you have been sent. You might be a teacher and so you have 500 students, right? That is your mission. That is where you have been sent. You might be a stay-at-home parent. That is where you have been sent. You may be a business owner or a student. That is where you have been sent. And the authority that ultimately he is going to be talking about in just a short, a few short verses, the authority is being a herald of the gospel, so we are sent wherever it is we are with the authority of the gospel that we are ambassadors for Christ. That is what he means when he says, or that is what we mean when we're undertaking uh, apostleship. That we are sent. That we are sent to wherever we are and we are there with the authority of the gospel, which means what? Man, that we are to be heralds of the gospel wherever it is we are, right? Doesn't have to be fancy. Again, I mentioned if you're a stay-at-home parent, let's say you got two little ones, man, you got two disciples. You have two disciples there with you, right? If you work a nine-to-five, you have people that are there who are your disciples. Number three, that we are chosen, so the first one is that we are servants. Next one is that we are sent. 
The next one is that we are chosen. Paul goes on to write, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Oh, it's up here. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. I love this. All right, here's why I love it, because we're going to talk about two things. Go ahead and leave this verse up. We're going to talk about two things. Number one, we're going to talk about the sovereign work of God and human responsibility. The sovereign work of God and human responsibility. If you could put the verse back, I'd, I'd really appreciate that. <laughs> this is where I wish I had a whiteboard. Okay. <laughs> okay, so servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith. If you are, Ben, underlining and highlighting and taking notes, I want you to underline that. For the sake of the faith, right? For the sake of the faith, that is referring to human responsibility. For the sake of the faith, that's human responsibility of God's elect, that is God's sovereign work. And there, he's talking about the Christians and their knowledge of the truth. Here's, here's the brief breakdown. God's sovereignty and human responsibility run parallel. They run parallel to one another. In other words, God is sovereign over the work of salvation from beginning to end through grace. And, and, no one will be saved unless they repent and believe. Repent and believe, and you will be saved. That is Romans 10, right? They run hand in hand with one another. Sometimes some people lean too heavily on one for the purpose of not wanting to do anything. Sometimes some people will use the sovereignty of God as an excuse to diminish, devalue, and remove missions and evangelism. But if we see that the sovereignty of God and human responsibility run parallel to one another, what that should tell us is that if we belong to Jesus, number one, we should be the most humble. We should be uber humble. I don't know how else to say it. Because there is nothing that we've done to earn our salvation. Our salvation is by faith through grace. That God has pursued us intentionally and motivated by love and holiness. And we are called to make disciples, to be heralds of the gospel, and are responsible for the decisions we make and don't make. It runs parallel. What holds it together is the work of Jesus. That is what holds God's sovereignty and human responsibility. That is what holds these two together. It is the person and work of Jesus. So we are chosen. There's still more to that. Number four, we are sanctified. Go ahead and put the verse back up, please. Thank you. 
So for the sake of the faith of God's elect, check it, and their knowledge of the truth. Now why I want to stress that is because that implies that as Christians, we have faith. Faith is having a knowledge of the truth that is God's word, agreeing with God's word, and then acting upon it. That should define human responsibility. That when we sin, we are purposely choosing the lie over the truth of the gospel. So we are held responsible because we have knowledge of the truth. And it directly connects with godliness. It directly connects to our godliness. Who we are and what God has done is directly connected to our godliness. It is directly connected to our sanctification. And when we talk about sanctification, we've defined it before. That is the process in which we grow in our understanding and our love for Jesus while at the same time growing to hate our sin and put it to death. In short, we are becoming more and more like Jesus. We are becoming more and more like Jesus, and our desire is to see more and more people come to know Jesus. Our ultimate desire is God's glory and for his will to be done. That is what it means to have confidence, and we can have confidence because of the work of God. We can have confidence in who we are because of the work of God. Knowledge of the truth is directly connected to our godliness. They're not separate. They are not separate. We've said it several times, right? Our identity determines our activity. It's not the other way around, right? Let's keep moving forward. Let's look at the conviction part. This is verses 2 through 3. I'll reread them. We spent a little bit of time on verse 1. Paul continues, In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested His word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. We're going to look at two things, and one of them has three subpoints. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're going to look at two things. The first one is we're going to look at, and, and this is different on my notes now than what you'll see up here. The first one is going to be God's witness. One of the beautiful things about verse two is that Paul gives us insight into the character of God, the promise of God, and the work of God. He goes in to tell us about his character, that God never lies. He tells us about the promise of Excuse me, he tells us about the promise uh, of our salvation, and he tells us about uh, his work, and that is the hope of eternal life. What, what does that mean for us? It means, it means a couple of things. It means that we have security in the work of God, that our salvation is not an afterthought, but an intentional pursuit. That's what it means. When we're talking about the hope of eternal life, it's not something that is wishful thinking for the Christian. 
Today, like in this time, 2018, when we use the word hope, we may refer to something that is, uh, may or may not happen. We may refer or use the word hope to, um, to, to, to wishfully think about something that may or may not happen. When we are looking at the word hope as seen in Scripture, it is a confident certainty of something that we may not have now, but we will. It is confident certainty. It is uh, factual. It is truth. It will happen. And so when we are talking about the hope of eternal life, we are talking about something that is true, not wishful. And as he continues to talk about the plan of salvation, God's plan for redemption, his pursuit of you has been intentional. It is not random. You do not belong to Jesus just because, but because you have been pursued. Because you have been pursued. Number two, God's word. Paul continues in this section. He goes on to say, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I've been entrusted by. We know that the Word of God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ. And in light of his death and resurrection, he has entrusted us with his Word. He has entrusted us with his Word. And so what that tells us is that we are to be heralds of the gospel because we are first recipients of the gospel. We are to be heralds of the gospel because we are first recipients, excuse me, of the gospel. I think one of the reasons we don't necessarily like to share the gospel, uh, actually, several of the reasons we don't necessarily like to share the gospel uh, tends to be because the reality is, uh, man, we really don't love Jesus as much as we say we do right? When you love something, you talk about it all of the time, right? Ask a CrossFitter, okay? Like when you love something, you talk about it all of the time. I think the primary reason we don't talk about Jesus is because we don't love him as much as we say we do. Man, you could push back on that all day. You know it hurts because it's true, and there's several sub-reasons for that. Perhaps, man, you're ashamed. Perhaps you don't want people at your job to know that you're a Christian. Perhaps you're too nervous because what if they ask you a question that you don't know? Right? Perhaps you feel like you have some reputation to live up to. Then I would submit that in those moments you're living for your glory and not his. We are heralds of the gospel because we are first recipients of the gospel. And that has incredible implications for our life. Incredible implications. And finally, number three, our conduct. And one thing, one last thing I would say about that conviction, we can have security because of God's work for us, in us, and through us. Let's look to the last part. 
conduct. This is the the closing part of of verse 4 where Paul writes, To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. I had put two things, but I think I'm just going to connect them here. One of the things that this tells us about, or one of the things that we see, is that we share common faith, that we are rooted and that we are grounded in the saving work of Jesus. Now, that's incredibly encouraging because that means that by grace we have become family. By grace we have become family, and what we will not compromise is the gospel and the saving work of Jesus. We won't compromise on that. And so our activity, or or I should say our conduct, is a result of who we are that we belong to God and that we are a part of God's family because we are rooted and grounded in the saving work of Jesus. Now, Paul continues after he says, a common faith, grace, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Here's what I would say to encourage you Christians. One of, or three of the most beautiful blessings we have um, as we are a part of the family of God is grace, mercy, and peace. That when we talk about grace, we are talking about unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. It is grace that got us to be a part of the family. It is grace that meets us where we are at. Broken, in the darkness, in the fringes, wherever it is, it is grace that meets us where we're at. And it is that unmerited favor that not only saves us, but makes us a part of God's family. So we have the blessing of grace. Number two, we have the blessing of mercy. Here's what I would say about mercy. Because of the work of the Son, we have access to the Father. And when we approach Him, we have unlimited compassion. Unlimited compassion from the Father. And finally, we have peace. That means that we are no longer at war with God. The Christian, I should say, is no longer at war with God. That they went from being an enemy to a friend. They went from being lost to found. They went from being an orphan to now being a son or a daughter. We have peace. Church, the promise of grace is that it inspires godliness. It inspires godliness, and the joy of salvation compels us to mission. Who we are determines what we do. If we are captured by the love of Jesus, we will love him back, not out of obligation, but gratitude. Join me in prayer.
God, as we close this time, um, after looking at your word, um, Lord, as we reflect on as we reflect on your grace, my prayer is that through your Holy Spirit, not only would we be convicted of our sin, but that we would be convicted for the purpose of repenting and worshiping you so that we would be transformed by you, so that we would be transformed to be more and more like Jesus. Lord, if your grace inspires godliness, then I pray that we take this moment to look at where we have purposely disconnected those two. That we would reflect on where we compartmentalize our life. Where we compartmentalize the joy of our salvation and mission. Evangelism being a herald of the gospel. Lord, I pray that we would reflect on that Man, as an individual, as a parent, as a spouse, as a teacher, whatever it is we are, that we would reflect on that and then repent of that. Lord, we desire, we desire for our lives to be marked by the work of your son, Jesus. We desire to be more like Jesus and less like ourselves. We desire for our love to increase and for us to decrease. And so, God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the letter uh, from Paul to Titus. Lord, I pray that it would challenge us in these next nine weeks. I pray that it would challenge us. I pray that it would compel us to change. I pray that we would find ourselves in a posture of humility and a posture of, man, passion for your glory and your supremacy. God, as we transition our time to tithes and offerings, Lord, I pray that this would be a continued moment of worship for us where we, uh, where we in fact, connect grace and godliness, where we connect uh, who you say we are with what we do. Um, and we would relinquish the control we feel we have. In fact, that this would be a moment, an opportunity of personal and public worship. That this would be a time where we get to testify to the work, uh, to your work in our lives. And so God, we thank you for this time. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen.